The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And it is my pleasure to welcome back today Mr. Ted Genoways. He's an award-winning poet, journalist, and editor. I heard him speak on a webinar for Healthy Food Action about his new book titled The Chain, Farm, Factory, and the Fate of Our Food, and I knew then that I wanted him to share his story with you. The Chain, as I mentioned last week, is a riveting, compelling expose of the meatpacking industry and its labor and animal abuses through the lens of Hormel, and so therefore it has a specific focus on the exploitation of pigs and people, all for the sake of what we hear, this need for cheap meat. So this is part two of our interview. It began last week when we spoke about what brought Mr. Genoways to the topic, how labor changed from a well-paid, skilled, middle-class, unionized labor force to one that is mostly unskilled, immigrant, and mechanized. We spoke about working conditions, the speed of the line, related injuries, lifelong neurological diseases resulting from those injuries, and relating also to this volatilized hog brain particle matter. So I wanted Mr. Genoways to come back and talk about some of the other issues that were on my list, and I think that are critical to public health and truly building a sustainable food system. So welcome back, Mr. Genoways. It's great to have you. Thanks so much for having me back. It's great to be here. Well, I wanted to maybe start our conversation with just briefly reminding us why you wrote the book and why you chose this title. Right. Well, the simple answer for why I wrote the book is that my grandfather for a time worked as uh, a worker in in one of the meatpacking plants around the old stockyards in Omaha. And so I sort of grew up with stories of what it was like to work in the meatpacking plants. And so it, it's always been something that's been in the back of my mind. And I guess in particular, because I grew up with his stories, I've always seen that work from the perspective of the line workers, the people who are most directly affected by the conditions in the plant. So the book for me really grew first out of that impulse. And then more directly, it emerged when I did first read a small item about the brain machine and the and the autoimmune disorder that you mentioned that was afflicting workers in Austin, Minnesota. And the more I investigated that story, the more I became convinced that it was not just a single magazine story, but at least a series of them. And eventually, it seemed to me a book because all of what was going on came back to that single root cause, which was trying to press the packing line, which is set by a chain conveyor system that sets the speed of production and gives the book its title. Pushing the speed of that chain was what was causing problems for workers in the packing plant, but it was also what was compromising food safety. It was what was compromising animal welfare on the farms and also affecting environmental safety. And so it became 
I guess, something of a quest for me to try to, to follow out to all of those areas, the places where the speed of the chain was having these unintended consequences. Yeah, that's perfect for jumping into the chapter that I wanted to spend some time with, and that is that the chapter is titled The Clean Bill of Health. And the speed of the line causing the worker injuries, these lifelong illnesses that they're going to have. But there's also the role of this mechanized meat industry and the hogs that come to it and how those hogs are raised. So we've got pig health issues that transfer to human health issues, specifically MRSA or methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus. We've got workers who are also suffering from antibiotic-resistant infections, and they bring those into the hospital. We know that workers in the hog industry are more likely to be carriers of MRSA, and then also just bronchial problems in working in these hog confinement buildings. So let's talk a little bit about hog health and human health. You, too, visited these hog farms. What were some of your impressions? So I visited few farms that were all Hormel supplying barns in Minnesota and in Iowa. And all cases were, were really right along the border between Minnesota and Iowa, which is an area that's seen a huge boom in confinement construction in the last decade. When you come into any one of these facilities, the number one thing that, that jumps out at you is how incredibly conscious of just the sort of pathogen protocols that everybody is who who works in the confinements. They're doing their very best to try to make sure that illnesses from the outside are not brought inside the barn. And when you're inside the barn, it's easy to understand where that concern comes from. Very often, in especially when you're talking about confinements that are the wean-to-finish barns as opposed to the farrowing barns, the barns where the piglets are raised up, those barns are very often sort of large holding pens with a thousand hogs in a single barn. And the confinement is very simple. It is very often just a, a metal structure that then has a slatted floor, the wooden floor where the hog waste goes through the floor into uh, a containment pit that is underneath the barn. And on the walls are venting fans because the waste that goes into those containment pits, what off gases from them would be dangerous if it were not vented, the gases coming off. So it's really nothing more than that. And then a feeding system, water that's provided, and then a heating system and some lights. So within that space, there's not much room for the hogs to move around, and they are right on top of each other. So if any illness were brought inside, it would spread rapidly through the the population. And it's for that reason that it has become sort of standard practice in the industry to mix in antibiotics as a matter of course with the feed. And, of course, the practice really took off once the industry figured out that those antibiotics not only keep the hogs from becoming ill and thus reducing the mortality rates of the herd. But in fact, the antibiotics cause the hogs to grow faster and to put on more weight than they would naturally, which allows them to 
to maximize the amount of profit from each animal. Mm-hmm. And then that is assumed to be the leading source of antibiotic resistant infections that we're facing today as a society. And from a public health perspective, that is one of the leading issues that we will be facing as a society moving forward is that we may be a society that doesn't have functioning antibiotics. It's a real cause for concern, I think. I mean, the thing that's very clear when you look at the whole system that's created with these confinements is that they are almost perfect environments for breeding superbugs. You put a nutrient source down in the pit in the form of the hog's waste. Any illness um, passes through the hog, of course, but so does all of the antibiotics that are not uptaken by the hog. So what's happening down there in the pit is a period of months where weaker bacteria are being killed off by the antibiotics that are still active in the pit, and the stronger ones are breeding with each other. And at the end of that time, they pump all of that waste out and they spread it on the soil. And it's injected ostensibly into the the subsoil, but in reality, it's not injected very deeply so that the, the root systems, especially of corn, are able to uptake that waste as fertilizer. And so if it's applied in the spring when there are heavy rains, as is often the case in a place like Iowa, large amounts of that are running off and directly into the water that everybody is drinking, especially if the people are on well water. They're drinking that often unfiltered. And so, yes, everyone is being exposed to antibiotic-resistant bacteria. They're also being exposed to sub-therapeutic levels of the antibiotics themselves. And it's a recipe for disaster. And as you say, too, that there are also airborne illnesses that can be spread uh, from hog to hog that those giant venting fans are actually blowing out and it's not only affecting the people who work inside the confinements but there is recent research to indicate that people who live a mile to a mile and a half away from confinements may also be able to contract MRSA. Certainly what they've been able to find is that if you live within a mile of a confinement you're about three times more likely to test positive for MRSA than someone who lives in a rural part of Iowa but not near a confinement. Mm-hmm. And that was the work that was done at the University of Iowa by Margaret Carell, who has also been a guest on this program. And they've got a great system at the Veterans Hospital where they're swabbing patients who are coming in, and that's how they were able to determine that. And I think that, or at least I wish, that hospital infection control leaders, you know, the directors of these programs, were able to be at the table before one of these hog confinement facilities moves into a region so that they fully appreciate what's going to happen to that community. Well, and this is one of the really fascinating things about the way that all of this works in Iowa. There is a public review process that exists. If you're building a confinement that is designed to hold more than a 1,000 animals, the catch is that, that animals or animal units, as they're defined in Iowa, is actually determined by a percentage of of a market weight beef cow. And so a hog is counted as 0.4 animals. 
And so you can actually have more than 2,000 hogs. And then there's also an allowance for overflow so that at peak times you can go over capacity. So as it turns out, you can actually build a barn that is designed to hold 2,400 hogs without there being any kind of public review at all. And as you might imagine, as these confinements have become more and more contentious, that size barn is becoming the norm. And the sort of standard practice is to build a barn that holds about 2,400 hogs and to build several of them in an area rather than trying to build one large one. So it's not as much as I, I would agree that I would love to have public health officials involved as part of the process, as it currently stands, even citizens themselves who may have armed themselves with the information and are there to express their concerns are not necessarily being allowed to be a part of the process. Mm-hmm. Listeners, if you're just joining us, we are speaking with Mr. Ted Genoways. He is the author of The Chain, Farm, Factory, and the Fate of Our Food. And we are addressing part two of his terrific book. Okay, so I also want to bring something up about the hogs that maybe people don't understand, and that is, as you explain on page 228, that hog waste exceeds human waste by 10 times. So one hog produces 10 times the fecal matter of an average human. That is a lot of fecal matter to manage. And as you described, you know, when we have these heavy rains, the fecal material gets into the water, we have fish kills, it creates high nitrate levels in drinking water. What's going on in terms of the Clean Water Act and protecting people's most important nutrient, which is water? Right. So, yes, the first thing is, in a state like Iowa, to consider that, as you said, every hog essentially counts as 10 people when you're looking at it from a waste management perspective. But then you figure that the entire state of Iowa has about 3 million people, while it also has about 22 million hogs. You multiply that by 10. Yeah. <laughs> you've got you've got the equivalent of more than 200 million humans in the form of hog waste against 3 million actual human beings. And so it's absurd that there's so much focus on how human waste is treated and so little concern about how animal waste is treated, especially when you consider that it's not just hogs. There's also a huge poultry industry. There are many feedlots for cattle you've got a tremendous amount of animal waste. And it's not just Iowa. This is true of any of the rural states that have really become livestock intensive. So the obvious problem that you run into is that you have to, as much as humanly possible, keep that waste out of the creeks and streams that feed the rivers where the drinking water is drawn from. And Iowa becomes a sort of terrifying case study of how that can go very, very wrong when you allow the overbuilding of these confinements directly on the watersheds that feed the two main rivers from which the state draws its water. You now have a situation where the Des Moines Water Works, which supplies about one in five people in the state of Iowa with their drinking water, they now, on a regular basis, see the water at their intake spots 
in the spring and for this year, for the very first time, also in the fall, coming in not just over the 10 parts per million that are permissible by the, the Clean Water Act, but actually, or sorry, excuse me, 10 milligrams per liter that are permissible by the Clean Water Act, but it's often off the charts. In the springtime in particular, they will see, you know, two, three, even four times the allowable levels. And if they're seeing readings like that downstream, as far away from the confinements as they are in Des Moines, what that means is that the people upstream who are drinking from wells or who are drinking from the, the water supplied by smaller municipalities are almost certainly drinking water that is over the allowable level under the Clean Water Act. And the, the problem has gotten so severe that, that watchdog groups have asked for the EPA to intercede and to monitor the levels of nitrates in the, in the water in Iowa directly because the, the state officials in Iowa, beholden to big ag as they are, have basically refused to properly monitor that problem. Hmm. And there are politicians who want to take strength away from the EPA. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I think that is a foolish idea, clearly. And also I'm concerned about people living in these communities. You know, maybe they can afford a water filter. Maybe the water filter is effective. But we have to think about our public commons, our drinking water, and how precious that is. I just wonder if you see a, a workable solution to this problem. Well, it's a serious problem in a state like Iowa where the entire system, the governmental system, is turned in favor of the large agricultural interests and turned entirely against environmental concerns or even public health concerns. You figure that Governor Terry Branstad, who was elected to office after he had previously served but was elected most recently in 2010, and one of his very first moves was to eliminate 100 positions at the Iowa Department of Natural Resources. He had a number of appointments that he was permitted to make to the nine-member Iowa Environmental Protection Commission. And among his appointments was a past president of the Iowa Pork Producers Association, the CEO of a hog confinement construction company, the CEO of an agricultural lobbying firm. Remember, these are the people he's appointing to the Environmental Protection Commission. Yeah. And you see just what the mentality of, that, of the current leadership is in the state. And this extends to other parts of the leadership there. I mean, Joni Ernst, who was just elected to the U.S. Senate from Iowa, ran on a platform of saying that she would push for the elimination of the EPA when she got to Washington. And you see this sort of pork politics spreading to the national level when you see something like Chris Christie refusing to sign a gestation crate ban in New Jersey, right. a measure that was supported by 93% of voters in New Jersey because he didn't want to get crossways with the power structure in Iowa that he's hoping to draw on when he mounts a presidential bid in 2016. Mm. So, you know, these issues that can seem 
very remote and can seem that they are kind of of local concern, they have actually really broad-ranging implications. And to that point, on, on on the health issue, I would add that that watershed in Iowa, those rivers are some of the main contributors to the Mississippi River, and the Mississippi River is having terrible problems with nitrate levels to the point that there's now a deoxygenized zone in the Mississippi Delta around Louisiana that is about the size of Connecticut. And these are serious national problems that are being created by not keeping a close watch on what's going on in Iowa. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have a friend in Iowa who has said to me, I just can't understand why people living in states downstream don't turn around and sue us for you know, the damage that is created downstream. It probably takes a big pocketbook to accomplish some of that. And I am also concerned, in addition to weakening the EPA, the new ag-gag laws. You were able to go into these hog barns. And we want to have more transparency with regard to our food system, not less. And yet, for people who have tried to call out some of the horrors that exist in these barns and in these communities, they're prosecuted because of these laws. And I can't make sense out of this. Well, I can't make sense of why people are accepting of these measures. I understand where they're coming from. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that that unfortunately is is all too apparent. I mean, and you know, I focused in this book on Hormel. Hormel also has a strong hand in these ag-gag measures. They had a major incident in Iowa with uh, a PETA undercover investigation that became a huge national story that that really had uh, major implications for Hormel and some of its major suppliers. They, on the heels of that were instrumental in drafting the legislation that was introduced in Minnesota and Iowa, a version of which eventually got passed in Iowa, and were also involved in you know, mounting a campaign against the animal rights groups that, that had been investigating them. And there's no question that these companies are willing to spend big dollars to make sure that no one has any idea what's going on inside those confinements or inside their packing plants. They want all of this to be done as much as possible in secrecy. And to me, the natural question, whenever someone demands secrecy, is what it is that they have to hide. Right, exactly. I don't know if you're familiar with a publication called The Meeting Place, M-E-A-T. I am, yes. Right. <laughs> I have a subscription to that, and I enjoy reading how the industry perceives some of this legislation and what we who are trying to educate consumers and connect those dots might view as an ag-gag law or what what we might call an ag-gag law. They call an ag protection act. So I love the way language is used both for and against us in understanding some of these issues. So when we try to understand or make sense of this, People seem to vote against their best interests, I think in large part because of the language that's used. Well, and I think it's fascinating that the original version of these ag-gag laws were drafted sort of in the, in the wake of the Patriot Act, mm-hmm. and the attempt by the industry was to actually use some of the new anti-terrorism measures against 
environmental and food activists. And the very, very earliest versions of these measures supported classifying people who were, in their words, interfering with animal enterprise, which often had a very broad and vague definition, that those people would not only be subject to prosecution, but that they would be prosecuted as terrorists and would be on terrorism watch lists thereafter. That's right. So you see that the version of this that has eventually taken hold is considerably watered down from there. But to me, it's quite a view of how the industry regards people who want to have more information about the work they're doing. Mm-hmm. We only have a couple of minutes left, and I have certainly many more questions I could ask you, but I really want to give you a chance to bring forth anything in this book that I did not and leave our listeners with just some final words. Well, I think the thing that I would most like people to know that has actually occurred since the publication of the book, most of the book is really focusing on the small experimental program that the USDA created to see what would happen if they allowed a few meatpacking lines to run essentially as fast as they wanted to go. Hormel made a great case study because all of their cut-and-kill operations were included in the small group of test plants. So everything that I've been describing is fairly isolated right now. But the USDA has just released a report studying how well this pilot program has turned out. And it is their official position that the program has been a success. And they are now asking for the next phase, which would be conducting the research into what would need to be done to implement what has currently been isolated to five plants to implement that and expand it into more than 600 plants nationwide. That is not a foregone conclusion. And they talked recently about allowing those line speed increases across the entire poultry industry. And enough outcry came from that, and there was enough pushback from food activists and from workers' rights advocates that there was a break put on that particular part of the rule change from the USDA. And there were, in fact, caps set for the speed that lines can go in poultry plants. Mm-hmm. We need to not stop there. We need to make sure that there are similar measures enacted for the pork industry and eventually for the beef industry, which almost certainly will come next. We need to keep pushing and to keep insisting that the USDA monitors this, that OSHA takes a hand in making sure that the line speeds are safe and healthy for workers up and down the supply chain. And we need, of course, uh, Congress and the president to be a paying attention to the safety of our food supply. So all of us as citizens need to be doing what we can to make sure that our leaders are keeping an eye on this issue and making sure that this program isn't allowed to expand without proper supervision and without safe limits being set on the speed that the packing line can go. Well, Mr. Genoways, I want to encourage everyone to start 
to learn more about these issues by reading your book. It's absolutely terrific. The Chain, Farm, Factory, and the Fate of Our Food. Mr. Genoways is an award-winning poet, journalist, and editor, the author of the book we've been discussing. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. We'll provide a link, Mr. Genoways, to your website, which is simply tedgenoways.com. And I want to thank you so much for this book and for being my guest. Thanks very much again for having me. Thank you.